we are very excited this morning, as you may have heard, today is Mother's Day. And so, yeah, that's what we, we wanted to take a moment to honor our mothers. Um, and so I was going to have us clap, but we already did that. Thank you, because you can't, you can't say enough, and, and, and enough wonderful things about mothers and motherhood. And um, we know that uh, moms, there's, there's so many things we could say to thank you, so much that you are worthy of. Elise and I have been chatting about how to exactly commemorate this in our service. And so what we pitched Josh on was an all-expense-paid trip to the Bahamas for all of the mothers among us. And we had the whole thing worked out. It was, there was going to be, like, live music. And um, we, we had, like, a, a, a chartered a boat. We had a, a chocolate fountain. It was amazing. And, and Josh said that that was a potentially criminal use of church funds. So we spiked that. We spiked that. But what we did want to do is we did want to acknowledge at least some uh, representative sample of the moms here today. So what we wanted to do, we have two gifts to give away. Because we can't give a gift to all of you, I wish that we could. Uh, what we wanted to do is uh, we have a few things that, that we, we want to give. The first thing, you know, motherhood is so much about uh, putting the needs of others first, about delay, about not getting what you want or need when you need it. Um, so what we wanted to do is... is the mom whose birthday is furthest from Mother's Day. So what that works out to is around November 8th. So, okay, if your birthday is in the month of November, raise your hand. Are there any moms in the month of November? Okay. No, no, Kyle, just the moms. Just the moms, Kyle. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. Okay. Um, wonderful. Jillian? Yes? Wonderful. We have, which one are we Okay, Alisa is bringing to you now a, I should bring it, you're the mom. No, 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 you, we have a book that, that she's highly recommended. Let's give her a hand. She has to wait a long time to be celebrated again for her birthday. And a little gift certificate to a nail salon of your choice. Somehow she worked that out where you can go to any nail salon and that somehow works. It's amazing. Okay. Now, moms are always pouring out, so we wanted to think of something else that would be a way to pour in. Um, and again, we wanted to honor those who have shown great sacrifice, as mothers do. So we wanted to recognize the mother who has come from the furthest, okay? So if you, are, if you have come from a different time zone, raise your hand. Oh, I think we know who's going to win this one. Okay, wonderful. Uh, David Lowe's mom is here, guys, from South Africa. took an 18-hour flight just to celebrate with us this morning. Well, this, this is an audible gift card, perhaps some of your plane trip home. Um, but no, we, we uh, obviously we take this very seriously, and uh, Lisa's coming back to give us the serious stuff. But from, from our hearts, really, we love you all. We wish we could have all given you something wonderful. Thank you. Hi, everyone. We just want to bless you for a moment. Um, we start out by saying, well done. Well done, mom. Well done, women. Well done. 
Like most beautiful things, motherhood is complex. With its immense beauty can also come the pain of loss and longing. There are many of you who have struggled in relationship with your mom. Others whose desire for children has gone unfulfilled. Then others who have suffered through loss of babies you'll never get to hold. It's not small, and we don't forget. The path of motherhood is not straight, and God sees that. He weeps when we weep, and he celebrates as we celebrate. Today, we celebrate. Moms, we celebrate you. We celebrate the works of your hands, and as you seek to raise these tiny humans into fully formed, Jesus-loving adults. Well done. Please pray with me as I pray for you this morning. We praise you, Lord, for mothers, sisters, and daughters. Thank you for the women you have gifted our church family with, women who were made in your image. We bless you, God, your mother heart. You, God, are the perfect mother, gracious, compassionate, understanding, and good. We receive these words from Isaiah this morning. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and glory of nations like, an, like overflowing streams. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hands of the Lord shall be known to his servants. Lord, we ask you to be near to the brokenhearted this morning. Bring peace and healing and restoration like only your spirit can. Whisper words of comfort and use us, Lord, to deliver them today. God, I ask that you would be generous with the mothers in this room, that you would pour out your renewed energy and patience over them, that you would protect our minds from guilt and shame and regret. Instead, God, may we raise our children with confidence and integrity. Give us, Lord, a holy vision to see your children as you see them, to see the gifts you have given them and part of your character that they carry. Give us, God, holy creativity to foster these gifts and to inspire their imaginations with your wonder and your great love. Make us brave. May we have the great wisdom to enjoy each precious moment. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you. Now, Stephanie has a special music for us. <laughs> and you would be sorely disappointed. <laughs> or me. Join in um, standing um, for, the, for our teaching text today. It's from John 21. Afterward. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It has happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon, P Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, John, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Mother's Day. I really think we should do like a GoFundMe or something. Get the, the Jamaica thing, the Bahamas thing going again. I mean, like we could do this. Okay. All right. Michael's in charge of that. Um, it's so good to have the Lowe's here from South Africa. Holy moly. Really big fan of your, 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 your family. You guys are great. Um, we have so much to go through. I'm just going to stop joking around and do the talk. Um, so several weeks after this breakfast on the beach, um, several of these same followers of Jesus were praying. And they were praying in this upper room in Jerusalem. And there was the beginning, a celebration of the early harvest that we call Pentecost. 
And something happens in this prayer meeting where there was an outpouring of God, God's spirit. And um, what was going on in the prayer meeting began to spill out into the streets of Jerusalem. And this man, Peter, stands up and tries to make sense of what is happening. And he preaches his first public sermon, full of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people, almost entirely Jewish, uh, come to faith in Jesus on that day. Come to faith in a Messiah who had just been publicly executed by the Romans. Literally, the furthest thing from the possibility of their theological constructs that you could get, that Messiah would be executed. And yet, 3,000 at the words of this fisherman, filled with the Holy Spirit, put their faith in Jesus and begin walking as his apprentices, experiencing his salvation on the day of Pentecost. An utterly new paradigm for life was breaking out in the world. A few weeks after that, two men have visions. Uh, One's named Cornelius, and Cornelius is a Roman military officer, uh, the leader of at least 100 troops, um, and God speaks to him and tells him that he has heard his prayers and, and tells him to send for a man named Peter who will come and fill in the next steps for him. This man, Cornelius, um, just so we're aware, leads the the forces of the troops of the occupying force of Israel. Everything that made them say God's promises were on delay for them. This man is a representative of that. He is is a Gentile, um, and yet he was a God-fearer, a man who prayed, a man who was generous to the poor. The other man who has a vision is is Peter. And uh, Peter, uh, a pious Jewish boy, a fisherman who had had been following Jesus, has this very bizarre vision, trance, dream thing uh, where he's instructed to kill and eat unclean foods. Very bizarre. And Peter in the vision protests. But God says, don't call anything impure that God has called clean. And at least part of the implications of Peter's vision is that he's being prepared for this intersection with this man Cornelius, who's a, who's a military Roman leader, who he's going to share the message of the gospel with. So Peter travels with um, representatives from Cornelius back to his house, and Peter shares with, um, with Cornelius about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the salvation that's offered in Christ. Here's how Acts 10 summarizes it. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. 3,000 at his first sermon, now a new sort of fold in the story of God that Gentile believers are being welcomed in. Many years later, the third incident I'll I'll, I'll mention, and we don't have all of this recorded in Scripture. Some of it is coming to us through uh, church tradition, but a married couple was executed in Rome for preaching and practicing the way of Jesus. And Peter is reported to have shouted to his wife as they carried her away, remember the Lord. When it came time for his own execution, Peter, in such reverence for Christ, asked to be crucified upside down so that he wouldn't be crucified the way the Lord was. 
The shocking brutality of Nero was trying in vain to stomp out this burgeoning movement of Jesus that was sweeping the empire. So he kills Peter and Paul in the span of just a little amount of time in Rome. But they were like seeds in the ground. And far from snuffing the movement out, the movement actually grew and grew. And more and more communities were drawn into the love and way of Jesus. It is truly mind-blowing to think all these thousands of years later, we are in the wake of that movement of Jesus. The sermon, the vision for Cornelius dying in Rome. Jesus had breakfast with his friend on the beach. And he goes through this very intentional moment of, I I think the only way to describe it is restoration. What Peter, we know Peter had famously denied Jesus in, in that moment after Jesus was arrested. And Jesus basically like creative theater goes back through and recreates the scene almost exactly and walks Peter through step by step through his failure to restore him. Peter, you can imagine, you can see it almost in how eager he is to get to Jesus before everyone else. It's still pretty broken up inside about this, this denial, this, this sort of moment that would have horrified him. Instead, he went away and wept bitterly. But this breakfast with Jesus changes Peter's life. And I think it's also not an understatement to say it does change the world. Like even if you're not on board with the claims of Jesus and the and this, this stuff of Christianity, like just historical fact, this breakfast on the beach changes the trajectory of world history. So maybe God could have accomplished some of the same things through someone else. We aren't told. What we do see is Peter's life stretching out from this breakfast healed of shame and despair. We also know there's a man missing from this breakfast. He's mentioned Judas. He followed his shame and despair into the grave. Both Peter and Judas failed Jesus in significant ways on the cross. We know, we know both of them felt awful. Uh, we know on some level that both of them wanted to make things right. But Judas took his own life in shame and despair. Peter, even if it was somewhat unwillingly or reluctantly, brought his shame to Jesus and was healed over a process. We're talking in these days, this season that we're in in the church life is called Easter Tide, and it is grappling with the implications of the resurrection. If Jesus steps onto the scene and says, I've come to give you life and life to the full, eternal life, a life that begins now, that has a certain quality of connection with God and love for one another, and carries you literally into eternity, and it is an abundant life, what are the barriers to that life? And we're looking sort of step by step at the primary barriers to the abundant life Jesus offers in our own life. And last week, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been laying some groundwork for that. And last week, we talked specifically about lies in a broad category. I want to get specific with the lies connected to shame and despair this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Someone should help me plan these series out. Oh. Anyway. Uh, I'm guessing I'm not alone in this, um, but I've had many friends walk away from their faith uh, in the years that I've been a follower of Jesus and, and the years specifically that I've been a pastor. 
And I try a little less and less to take it personal, but it still, still hurts. Um, uh, many of these people I'm still in relationship with. I was just in conversation with one of them yesterday. And this, this guy, I, I, I love him. He happens to be really honest about his simple conclusion of why he walked away from his faith. And he basically just says, I don't think God loves me or chose me. Like, I think maybe some people have that, you know, like, running in the ticker, ticker tape of their subconscious somewhere, but he just says it outright. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm one of the ones God is for. Like, he tried to believe and walk with God, but something wasn't working, and so he concluded that God didn't want him. I've told my friend many different ways. I literally try to get more creative about how I tell him that I think his conclusion is wrong. It actually truly does break my heart. But maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you feel like the good things of life are always for someone else. (laughs) The good things of God's love are always for someone else. There's always those hand-raisy people that God really, like, seems to be into. What about me? I have have another friend who, who says that shame is uh, internalizing a critical gaze. We take our critique that we have for the world and we bend it in on our own soul. You start to see yourself as a mistake. There's been a lot of writing in the last few years about shame, the difference between guilt and shame, how guilt can be uh, helpful for us in identifying a type of behavior or a mistake that is not aligned with who we want to be, and we feel guilt. It's sort of like a mechanism in in our being for letting us know that we're offline in some way, and you can respond to that guilt by correcting the behavior, the choice, or the pattern. Shame, however, is about who you are. It's sort of like, basically, if guilt is about your behavior, shame is about your identity. So guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Shame and despairing shame are barriers to the abundant life of Jesus because they get woven into our identity and they start to become a voice that we hear over and over and over again. Peter and Judas both felt guilt there, were, there was behavioral things in both of them, motivational things in both of them, actions in both of them that needed to be looked at and changed. But Peter experienced the mercy of Jesus lifting and healing both his guilt and his despairing shame. And this breakfast is, is the scene where some of that work takes place, and I, I want to look at it. Because here's the thing, I, I know it's Mother's Day, and it's finally not raining, and I want to be like, uh, like... I'm an enthusiast, a seven on the Enneagram. I'm ready to get out there and like talk about joy. But the reality is that shame threatens to smother the image of God in us. Shame can trap us in despair. Shame can threaten the unique good that we can offer and do in the world. We only have a what if over Judas's life after he sells Jesus out. But we know that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to cover all, even the very worst sins. Jesus cries out, it is finished. I don't think Judas was better at sinning than Jesus is at redeeming, and yet he didn't bring his, 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 his guilt, his shame, his despair to Christ. 
He allowed those things to take him into the grave. And I'm very thankful that we get to see this mercy and healing worked out in Peter's life. So I'm going to give you the, the end here sort of at the beginning, stretching that as preachers will. But I believe that this morning God wants to, to do some work lifting shame and restoring some lives uh, so that we can live in the fullness of our true identities and, and callings. I, I wonder if um, there is some freedom and joy that we might be missing because it's buried underneath shame. If there is some courageous good that is meant to be done by people in this room as sons and daughters of Jesus, but right now the impetus to do that is covered up in this internal gaze of criticism that we've leveled on ourselves. I wonder if there's not some creative love that's meant to be unleashed by this congregation that is right now under the weighted blanket of shame. What is buried underneath shame and despair in our lives? And to get there, I want to walk us through a case study, a few moments in Peter's life, and, and grasp what happens at this breakfast, hopefully for all of its weight. And I do apologize. I, I, I uh, didn't realize uh, as we laid out shame and despair that it was going to fall on Mother's Day or that we would just have covered Peter's life in the seconds course this week. So those of you, put your hands up if you were in the seconds course this week. A touch of this is going to be review because we covered Peter's life, but maybe, apparently God wants you to hear it twice. So talk to, talk to the Lord. Um, we're going to go fast, and there is some stuff we, did, we didn't cover on, on Tuesday. But you're also invited to the Seconds course. It's a course on following the way of Jesus in Brooklyn in 2022. It's practice-based. It's sort of experimenting with different ways we follow Jesus and doing that. In a, and there's great food. We've had uh, Michael and Pings the first week, Ty uh, the second week. I don't know what we're going to have this week. Come and find out. Come to the Seconds course. All right, Peter and Jesus, let's go. Their first interaction is crazy. It's wild. The first time Jesus walks up to Peter, his brother Andrew says, hey, we found, um, we found the one who is the Messiah, and, and he brings him to Jesus. And right away, what does Jesus do? He changes his name. You have been called, you, you are uh, Simon, son of John. You're going to be called Peter. Quite a first meeting. You ever try to change someone's name the first time you met them? I was talking about this in the seconds course, but there's like, as a kid when I would read these moments where Jesus just walks up to someone and is like, follow me, and then they do, I was like, what is it with him? Does he have the Obi-Wan glow about him? Like, these are not the drones you were looking for. Follow me. And, and, and how, how does it work? What, what's going on? But there's, there's some sort of um, cultural um, understanding of what's happening when Jesus walks up to someone and says, follow me. And so in, in Peter's first interaction with Jesus, Jesus changes his name. He makes a statement about his future. You've been called the most common name in your culture, Simon, son of John. That's been your identity. This is, this is connected to who you are as a person. I'm speaking about your future. You're going to be Peter, which means the rock. The next time he comes up to him, he invites him to follow him, and Peter does it. Now, there was this process, and we know that Jesus and Peter had missed out on some degree of this process. There were three stages of a Jewish boy being invited to follow a rabbi. And so the beginning was general education, 
And then for the select students in the first cut, they were invited to study Torah more deeply with some rabbis. And then at the most elite of that group was then called to be apprentices or mathetes or, 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 or disciples. And the way a rabbi would, would walk up to one of these sort of select students and say, say, I want you to live in my dust and, and become like me, learn my teachings, walk in my ways, is he would come up to them and would say very formally, I want you to follow me. So Jesus walks up to Peter and he says, follow me. And Peter does. But over and over, especially in the early, and some of the different stories in the Gospels makes it a little bit challenging to plot this on the timeline. But several months will go by and Peter will go back over and over again to fishing. And finally, about four months after he changed his name and initially called him to follow him, Jesus um, is teaching and it says that he's teaching this large crowd, and Peter's there, but he's not sitting on the front row taking notes. He's not living in the dust of the rabbi. He's not doing what you would typically expect an apprentice of Jesus to be doing. What he is doing is he's washing his fishing nets. So initially Jesus called him to follow him, and he left his nets and he followed, but now he's back to washing the nets because he's been fishing all night. He's gone back to what his identity is rooted in, what he knows, what he can control, where he finds security. And so now Jesus does this miraculous catch a fish thing where he's standing there, he's teaching, and then he pushes out from the shore and he says, drop your nets on this side. And they're like, thank you, we're experienced fishermen. We've literally been fishing all night long. Uh, but Peter says, since you tell us to, we will. And what happens? They can't pull the net into the boats. There's this miraculous catch of fish. And so Peter becomes a disciple and Jesus tells him what? You've been a fisherman. I'm going to teach you to fish for people, whatever that means. But as they go along, Peter becomes uh, an apprentice, a disciple under Jesus. Um, he also becomes a leader and representative of the group. Over and over again, all the disciples will be there, but the scene and the description will focus particularly on Peter and Jesus or Peter and John. And, and Peter is, is often, maybe he was one of the older ones, maybe it was because he was a, a, you know, a, a partial business owner, maybe it was because some of them had worked for him. But one, one way, reason or another, Peter becomes a, a representative and a spokesman for the group. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus seems to know that a lot of people are following him just because of the phenomenon of his miracles. And he says something really strange. He turns around and says, if you want to be my disciples, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Like Jesus' PR, people are freaking out at this moment. And it says that many who are there said this is a very hard saying, and they, they departed from him. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you guys want to go too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter speaks up. Peter makes this confession. All through his story, we see that Peter is, is like this. He's a man of incredible faith. He's a man of, 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 of action. He's a man of, 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 of impulsivity at times. Um, he, he's a man of incredible faith, but he's also very human. He's the only one who gets out of the boat to walk towards Jesus in that walking on the water story. In, in Matthew 16, similar to this account, he's the one who confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus tells him, okay, part of what that means for me is I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be, and be killed. And Peter tries to set him straight and say, no, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Anybody? Get behind me, Satan. 
Thanks a lot, pal. Left my fishing business for you. Get behind me, Satan. It seems like, in a sense, he's just trying to protect his friend to say, no, this is not the expectation we have for Messiah. And Jesus says, you're trying to prevent me from doing the thing that is actually connected to my deepest vocation to redeem the world, to be the Lamb of God. And so you're standing in the place of the enemy of our souls right now. Over and over, Peter, and we don't even have time to get into all the the nuanced detail of it, but he's grappling with this vision of God and Messiah and the reality of Jesus. And that's why I think Peter's so helpful. I know know a few people who their their spiritual life is sort of like just a a linear trajectory seemingly up and to the right, but almost everyone, it's more like this. There is the follow me, but then there's the whatever fishing is, we go back to fishing. We go back to our old way, our old life, our old identity. Peter is so reassuring in that he's, he's through fits and starts, he's coming to grapple with like, yes, there's this incredible invitation, there's this promise, I've had experiences with you, I've heard you call my name, I've seen you forgive, I've seen you do miracles, I, I believe you are who you say you are, but then there's also the reality that you're not doing things the way I would do them. And this isn't happening the way I would choose it to happen. And this is really frustrating. This is really disappointing. He's grappling with his vision of God and Messiah and the reality of Jesus. Most of the teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees of Jesus' day, did not believe that Israel's Messiah was going to suffer. They knew about the suffering servant passages in Isaiah that talks about this you know, bruised reed and the suffering servant, but they thought we have become the ones who are suffering. We are dealing with Roman occupation, so we are the ones who are suffering. So when Messiah comes, he's going to be a liberator. The most recent story that they had of a hero was the Maccabean Revolt, where violently, in a Braveheart style, these Jewish sort of like zealots had stormed out, 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 out in guerrilla warfare style and driven the enemy back violently and won freedom and independence. And that's what they were expecting Messiah to do. And we, you can hear that in church all the time. You hear lots of things in church all the time. Peter is is a spokesman for the expectations of his generation that Messiah was going to be a liberator. And then he actually gets to see who Jesus really is. Peter is one of the only disciples there for the transfiguration. This moment where Jesus' glory is revealed, where he shines forth as who he truly is. So now Peter knows for sure, this is the guy, this is Messiah, this is the one we've been waiting for. And over and over again, he gets selected and brought along in this inner circle. I just want you to track with where Peter is, and now we're going to get to some of the juicy details. There's some confusion with Peter at the Last Supper. Um, First of all, On the way into Jerusalem, um, I think Peter gets selected for a job that he wasn't expecting was going to be his. Uh, Inside of the hierarchy of the 12, Peter and John are often selected for the, 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 the choice places to sit right next to Jesus. And others are sent to do sort of like the menial tasks of getting things ready. But when it comes to the Last Supper, Peter is sent to prepare the room. And so he's treated like a servant. 
And there's this sort of ongoing conversation that seems to be happening among the disciples that they seem to keep getting in with Peter right at the very center of us, who is going to be the greatest among them. And this is a regular uh, argument that Jesus seems to catch them in. Their paradigm for leadership, for greatness, for the expectation of how God would work in the world was that there was going to be obvious, demonstrable power and this sort of servanthood motif that Jesus was living out didn't, didn't gel with that. So we show up at the Last Supper, a meal that Peter has worked to the bone to help set up, and now we see from the seating order that there's Jesus, and right next to him is John, who reclines on him at the meal, and then the one closest to Jesus, able to dip his bread in the cup with Jesus, is who? Judas, right in the place that Peter would normally sit. So Peter is a little bit of the ways off. Some of the details we know of this is that he has to sort of motion to John and ask him to ask Jesus some questions throughout the meal. Again, they have an argument about who the greatest is, and Jesus silences this argument by standing up and putting a towel around his waist and going and washing the disciples' feet. And I know you guys have heard this is... Uh, this is a task reserved for the lowest of the low servants. It's like Jesus says, I've told you guys over and over again that you're not understanding the nature of the kingdom, but let me just show you. And he washes each of the disciples' feet. But what happens when he comes to Peter? Peter's the only disciple that we ever get an example of him telling Jesus no. And that, I think, speaks to the closeness of their friendship. He says, Jesus, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. And then Peter totally flip-flops. He's like, fine, wash my entire body. You've got, you got to see, see that, like, impulsivity with Peter. Like, I can respect that. Like, Jesus, this is inappropriate. Oh, it's, it is appropriate? Then get me all the way. That's how he did it. This is Peter's motion there. Jesus is trying to show him what it's going to cost to be a disciple, what actually servant leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. And Peter makes these big promises. He's basically like, Jesus says, listen, you're all going to be scattered. You're all going to bail on me. Peter says, maybe them, not me. Even if I have to die, I will not betray you, right? You just courage, faith, spokesmanship. You changed my name. I left my fishing nets for you. I've been following you. I've seen you declare the kingdom of God. I've seen you tell people to get up and walk. I've seen you provide bread. I've seen you transfigured. I know maybe better than you know who you are. You're Messiah. You're, 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 you're God's son. You're the holy one. You're the one who's come to redeem us. No matter what, I will not deny you. You just, you just feel it sort of burning off the pages, Peter's fervent commitment. Jesus says, okay, come on. And they walk to one of their favorite places to pray, this olive grove in the middle of the night. After this big meal, after the confusion of it, after the washing feet bit, after the argument about who's the greatest, they get to the, the garden and Jesus tells all the disciples except a few to stay there and then he brings Peter and James and John a little further in. Three times he's trying to pray, what happens? They fall asleep. They're supposed to be on the watch for Jesus and they fall asleep three times. Eventually Jesus comes down and says that he's been sorrowful to the point of death, that he's sweat drops of blood, that he's wished there was any other way that this cup could pass from him. And finally, his watchmen have no idea that danger is approaching and he comes to them and says, my hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
and honestly, a detail I don't really understand at all about Jesus is some point before this, he, he tells his disciples to get some swords, which actually seems totally out of like the, the rest of the picture. Um, and we need a sermon on that, but not today. Um, and Peter has one of these illegal swords. And when the arresting officers come, like imagine like hundreds of them with torches and weapons coming to arrest Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, I've been teaching in the temple. You could have got me at any time. And this is how you come with the soldiers? And you can, you can see that they were imagining they were going to have to look for him. And he walks right up to them. And Peter does something courageous. He draws his sword and he goes to attack and he cuts this guy Malchus's ear off. Now remember what he said earlier at the meal? No matter what, if everyone else betray, you know, like goes their own way, I will not be scattered. He's making good on this. We give Peter a really hard time for the denial later. He was ready to fight. He cuts a guy's ear off. Apparently not a lot of practice with a sword, fisherman. Gets the guy on his ear. Jesus is like, <sighs> fixes the ear. That's exactly how it happened in the message translated by Eugene Peterson. So Jesus is arrested. He's carried off. What could Peter be thinking? John, who seems to have a little more social standing in the community, people know him. Maybe um, Peter was in charge. They were in a fishing business together. And some scholars speculate that, that Peter was the one who managed the boats and the bringing into the fish. And that John was in charge of the distribution. Because everyone seems to know John. They let him into the courtyard. People know his family. People know what he's about. And so they're following along. And, and really, at this point, Jesus' prophetic word becomes true. And the disciples do scatter. But Peter and, and, and John are following after Jesus and John gets led into the house but Jesus uh, but but Peter is is um, is standing there in the courtyard and we've seen his courage we've seen his faith we've seen him draw his sword John 18 a young girl says to him you aren't one of this man's disciples are you she asked Peter he replied I am not amen this is, a, this, is a true, this is a true reality. Columns of soldiers, teenage girl, who's scarier? He denies it. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them warming himself. So he's outside in the courtyard as Jesus is going through this, this mock trial. The trial goes on in, in John 18, 25. Meanwhile, Simon... Uh, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Then it gets a little more personal. <laughs> one of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose, Peter, uh, whose ear Peter cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. All right, you've heard this story. You've seen this in Mel Gibson's movie. What's going on here? I don't think it's just that Peter's afraid. I mean, he could have run away at any point. He already drew a sword and tried to take on a column of soldiers. I don't think this guy's problem is that he's not courageous. I think he, he's being unraveled in his picture of God. I think his, his picture and expectation of what Jesus had to be like, what he had always expected from childhood that Jesus was gonna be like is being transformed before his eyes. Literally, the Messiah he had bet everything on is in captivity. He knows where this is headed. He's literally seeing despair begin to take hold of his heart. 
I don't think this is just a moment of only fear. I think this is a moment where Peter begins to despair, where Peter begins to give up in his spirit, where Peter begins to say, it was never what I thought. It was always for someone else. I think his understanding and picture of Jesus is unraveling. I think his understanding and picture of himself is unraveling. I think this is a moment of shame and despair. And so three times for very natural reasons so that you don't get a ruckus going, so that we don't draw attention away from what's happening in there. Yet, no, I'm not with him. I'm not with him. I'm not with him. And the rooster crows. And there's an account in one of the other gospels that Jesus turns and looks at him. It's the same exact translation of the word when Andrew brought Simon to Jesus the first time. It says Jesus looked at him intently and said, you're Simon, son of John. You're going to be called Peter, the rock. That same gaze is turned on him in this moment, and it utterly breaks Peter apart. I imagine in that gaze was forgiveness, <laughs> was compassion. This is probably his best friend in his worst moment, knowing that he had just done the very thing that he promised not to do. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Sometimes our own words can be used against us when the, when the shame tape starts playing. Even if everyone else walks away, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. You can imagine maybe sermons of Jesus were playing in his mind. No one who puts their hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. And guess what? He never gets to talk to him again. Because Jesus is taken away and executed. That's it. This mistake is locked in as the final moment between him and his best friend. I mean, him and the man that he'd followed for, the, for those years, he'd given up everything for, the one he had confessed, where else will we go? You are Messiah, the Lord. So several agonizing days go by. Peter and the disciples are hiding, scared behind locked doors, expecting themselves also to be arrested. And then rumors that sound like madness begin to circulate about his resurrection. Jesus and Mark... When he speaks, he seems particularly interested in getting to Peter. There's a bunch of different theories about this. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. And Peter seems particularly interested in getting to Jesus. When, that, when the women come and tell them about the rumor uh, in the garden, they have a foot race. And John makes clear that, that he beat Peter to the tomb. They raced. He's the fastest disciple. It's set. But Peter gets there, and, and John, a good Jewish boy who will not be defiled with uncleanness, stays out of the tomb. And what, is G, what does Peter do? He plows in there looking. You can see the urgency in his spirit. There's actually some evidence that Jesus made a point to go to Peter at least once on his own. We have nothing of what actually transpired in that interaction. There's a hint of it in Luke and a hint of it in Corinthians. When finally Jesus does have an extended interaction with Peter, though, do you know where he finds him? Fishing. Classic. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. This is, so 
Look at the theater Jesus is going through here. This is exactly the recounting of Peter's faith journey. He is literally putting together the building block pieces of his story of faith. This is the same sea right in the same place where he first called Peter to be his disciple, where he changed his name, where he said, follow me. It happened this way. Simon Peter, uh, Thomas, also known as Didymus, um, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they, count, they caught nothing. How did they even survive as fishermen? These guys are never catching anything. All night long they're fishing, catching nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, same beach where he sat in Peter's boat where he was teaching. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. There's something strange about how Jesus interacts with people after the resurrection. Nobody's recognizing him. You remember the the ones on the road to Emmaus? They recognize him in what? The breaking of the bread. In the communion meal. These guys, they they recognize him in what? The catching of fish. It's, 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 It's very interesting. Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Just a small detail I want you to know. They could not haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Later, it's mentioned there were 153 fish specifically. Bunch of speculation about what the symbolism of that is. We're going to get into none of it. But I just want you to imagine how heavy that net is for later. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon heard him, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So Peter, remarkably strange, swimming. Why on earth do you put a cloak on to jump into the water? Nothing to do with the sermon. I just genuinely want to know why he does that, okay? Someone think about it, journal about it, let's talk about it later. Why is Peter, they're they're only 100 yards or so away. Why is Peter so eager to get to Jesus? I think he wants to sort some things out about the last time they spoke. The other disciples followed in a boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and some bread. So charcoal, fire, this is exactly the same scene where Peter denied Jesus. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have caught. I know you don't know it, but this is one of those moments where wash my feet, wash my whole body. Jesus says, bring some of the fish you have caught. Peter, on his own, goes, and it says he drags the entire net of 153 fish by himself. This is a strong dude. The rest of them couldn't get the boat, the net in the boat. He drags the whole thing over. Jesus is like, okay, fine. Yeah, bring me a couple of the fish. The whole thing, Peter, you never learn, pal. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, what's he calling him here? (laughs) Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I don't know if he's talking about the other disciples. It was an argument they had a lot. He might be talking about the fish. That makes a lot of sense to me. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love me. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I want you just to keep that up for a second. 
there's a lot in here about the words Jesus is using, the words Peter's responding with, and why he asks him three times. But I think it's clear he's recreating the three denials. And he's asking Peter to affirm his love. And each time it's sinking deeper into the level of Peter's soul. The first time, of course, you know I love you more than these. Yes, I love, and then the third time it hurt because he asked him again, and all of a sudden he recognizes the fullness of what Jesus is doing. He's walking him back through this memory of his worst failure. And then after all of this, after this questioning, he looks Peter in the eye and says, simply follow me. He reaffirms the same thing he invited him into in the very beginning. The word a rabbi speaks to his disciple, come be with me. Become like me. Do what I do. That was the call of a rabbi to a disciple. Everything that flows from Peter's life flows from this healing moment. His shame is healed. His despair is transformed. He actually begins to become the rock that Jesus had called him on their first meeting. It it shapes his life. It shapes his writing. The world is changed (laughs) By the gospel that is pouring out of this man's life. And, and I just want you to see in the simplest possible terms, how does Jesus do it? I tell you all the details of Peter's life because I, I hope that we'll come to a place where the emotional weight and resonance of this moment begins to sink in for us. But also but because you know every nook and cranny, every turn, every detail, every nuance of your own story. And you know the places in your life where shame begins to come knocking at the door where despair begins to whisper in your ear, where it's always for someone else. This, this grief will always define you. This failure will always be your reality. This story will always be the narrative you're in. You know the nooks and crannies of your own story where that voice begins to break in. And I hope you see how caring and nuanced and tender and detailed Jesus is in walking Peter through the healing of his own shame and despair so that you know he's willing to do that for you and here's how he does it. Jesus heals shame first by applying abundant mercy to the situation. He goes to the cross and on the cross he says, it is finished. Literally everything necessary for you and I to be redeemed was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He has put our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jesus heals shame by abundant mercy. He comes and offers Peter utter and complete forgiveness. I want you to know, church, no matter what turns the volume of shame up in your life, whatever turns the volume of despair up in your life, Jesus has mercy that will cover it. We say this all the time, but you are not better at sinning or failing than God is at redeeming and healing. And it's pride to think that you are. The enemy will play on your pride. Your mistakes are so much worse than blah, blah, blah. And the the accuser will accuse God to you and you to God. And Jesus breaks in and he changes things with abundant mercy. The second thing is, is by aligning our love. What are the things in Peter's story that have begun to cloud his devotion to truly to to Jesus himself? It was his, his religion, 
His, his false picture of what Messiah had to be like. It was his own pride. Who was going to be the greatest? It was his own fishing business. It was his own uh, beating himself up about his mistakes. All these different things. And, Peter, and, and Jesus walks Peter through and he realigns his love. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you, let me realign your love. Let me root out anything that is going to be a, a rival, a false god to, to you, to, to your heart, to your affection, to your attention, to your devotion. Anything that you put in the place that God is meant to be in your life eventually will lead to despair. It's a reality. He heals shame by abundant mercy, by aligning our love and then affirming our calling. Last week we said that lies are not removed, they're replaced. I think the same thing is true of shame. Shame is not simply removed, it is replaced. Do you notice that every single time Jesus asked Peter to reaffirm his love, he doesn't just say, good, I'm glad you said that. That's what I wanted to hear. You got it right. You're thinking the right thoughts about God. No, he says, take active love. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Be used to nourish others. Be used to care for and love and pour out for others. The healing of shame in Peter's life doesn't lead to him sitting uh, crisscross applesauce on the beach feeling content. It leads to a life of active love. Shame is not just removed, it is replaced with a life of active love. Shame becomes acceptance. You are who Christ says you are. Despair becomes hope. The promises of God become the promises of your life. And, and when we're paralyzed in fear, it becomes active love. Shame is not removed, it is replaced. I said at the beginning that the stakes are high because shame threatens to smother the image of God in us. To trap us in despair. To threaten the unique good that we can offer and do in the world. It's a massive what if as to what the life of Judas would have been if he experienced this type of restoration and then went on to tell the story of that type of grace in the world. Because Peter goes on and tells about this massive grace and it, cha it changes the trajectory literally of human history. What would have happened in Judas' life if he came and allowed his shame and despair to be healed by Jesus? It's a massive what if. And I want to invite you and I out of that what if and to breakfast with Jesus. Because Jesus wants to have breakfast with you. I'm, I'm positive of it. Literally in Revelation, a picture of him is standing at the door knocking and anyone who opens the door, he'll come in and eat with you. And so that could be breakfast. You want to have some fish with Jesus and go through your life? He wants to. He wants to apply the abundant mercy he's won for you on the cross. He wants to align your love so that you're not living on something that's ultimately going to bring despair. And he wants to invite you into your truest identity and calling. There is creative love, courageous good that is meant to pour out of your life. And some of it's buried in shame. And Jesus wants to lift the lid and let you shine full of the Holy Spirit. I believe God wants to lift shame and restore lives so that we can live in the fullness of our identities in Christ and see what ripples out from those stories of freedom. And that's basically the end of the stuff I can say. Because now Jesus has to come and minister to you by the Holy Spirit and do that shame-lifting healing stuff. And the way it's probably going to work is he'll meet you in this meal, 
broken body, shed blood. He'll meet you in the voice of someone praying for you up here. Maybe he'll meet you ministering to you as we worship and song. But whatever way, for the rest of this service, the, the most profound opportunity available to you is for you to interact with that same Jesus who's having breakfast with Peter on the beach and healing his shame. He's here right now to speak with you and I. Ask the Spirit to do Jesus' ministry in your life right now. Heavenly Father, I, I pray in Jesus' name that you would lift shame, that you would heal despair, that you would lift our eyes, that you would call us out of paralyzing fear into active love, that you would move in our midst right now. I pray that there would be a tremendous wave of courageous good, creative love, tenderness, compassion, forgiveness, uh, generosity, mercy flowing out of the lives of Trinity Grace Church because of the shame that you heal in, the, in these moments. God, give us your mercy. Align our loves and help us to run in the race you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.